Good morning once again to you. What a great worship experience we've already had, dedicating children, t- putting pause and saying, God, life matters to you. And we see that best in the scriptures. And so let's turn there now. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 2, is where we're going to continue our introduction into this great book in the New Testament. We're calling this series Set Free. And I want you to look immediately at Romans, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat racks in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at your house or where you're staying right now, we would just love to give you the Bible in the seat rack as our gift to you. So please just take that home and use it outside of even our worship experience here this morning. In Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, you have no excuse. And just stop right there. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, opening line of this chapter, it says this, Therefore, you have no excuse. We are a culture, we are people that like our excuses. And nowhere is this more seen than when we try to get out of jury duty. (laughs) And I found some real life excuses that have been presented to courts here in the United States. And I want you just to see some of these for your own amusement. And, And this is one right here. It says this, but your honor, I can't serve on jury duty. You see, my wife is going to get pregnant and I want to be there. (laughs) I won't touch that. Um, Here's another one. This is a real life excuse. Court in the United States. Your honor, I can't serve because I have rigor mortis. (laughs) It's interesting they're able to even be in court. Um, Or... Your Honor, I'm 85 years old and not able to do anything but eat and kill time. (laughs) This describes many of our Christmas experiences. Uh, Here's another one. A woman told a a Bronx, New York court back in 2008 that she could not serve on a murder case. And the reason for it was this. She claimed she had been a murder victim herself. (laughs) I got better. (laughs) Um, Here's another one. One man wrote the court after getting his jury summons and asked the excuse saying he had explosive bowel movements. Um, the flu season is going on as I speak, and so many of you know this better than others. Um, okay, moving on. I'm, gar- I'm guessing that this excuse was presented by a single man, but um, I don't know. Your Honor, I have a very important World of Warcraft quest to finish, and my guild is depending on me. <laughs> World of Warcraft video, okay. Um, Your Honor, I'm requesting an excuse because I committed a felony. I just wasn't caught in that. And he moved over to the next courtroom there. Um, And then finally, I'll give you one more. Your Honor, I can't serve on the jury because I'm psychic and I already know the outcome of the trial. But it isn't just in jury duty that we like to give excuses, is it? I know in my own personal life, I've been wanting to run more. And so right around Christmas time, I went down to Shoe City here on Teston Avenue, and I bought these new Nikes. You like them? Okay, here we go. Um, And the thought with these was, okay, it's going to be a new year. 
uh, I want to start running more, and the best way to run more is to get new shoes. That's the motivation that I need. Uh, today is what, January 19th? I have run a grand total of twice <laughs> in 2014, and one of those was this week, because I knew I was going about to say this in the illustration <laughs> right here. I just come up with so many excuses of trying to avoid running. Um, one was this week, the flu has actually gone through uh, my family. Me and one of my sons are the only ones that haven't gotten it yet. And so this week, I was like, you know, I probably should run. But if I get sick, then I'm going to be really tired if I run right now when I get sick. So maybe I'll just wait till after I get the flu. Then I'll start really getting serious about running. I mean, that's our lives, isn't it? We are so good at just creating, making excuses for everything. But we are no better at making excuses than when it comes to facing the reality of our own sin. When it comes to facing our sin before a holy God, we are experts at creating excuses. And if you were to make a long list of all the excuses that people make for their own sin, I think they would all basically boil down to three common main sin issues or excuses. And the first one is this, is that we say to God and we say to ourselves, we even say to others, but, but other people sin way worse than I do. I mean, look at all the bad people in the world. I mean, there's so many people that are way worse off than me. Paul here addresses this very excuse here in Romans chapter 2. Look, continue in verse 1. It says, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Keep going here. Let's just go in verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightfully falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then look at verse 6 of chapter 2 here in Romans. Who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immorality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 11 says, For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are to a law to themselves. And what they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. 
on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Our tendency here as we see Paul uh, kind of counteracting this excuse, our tendency is to be critical, critical of everyone else but ourselves. The 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who ironically the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes was partially named after him. But Thomas Hobbes said this one time, he said, people are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. Isn't that true? We so often are so excellent at having 20-20 vision at everyone else's sin and mistakes and failures and yet casting a blind eye to our own personal sin. Well, nothing's changed in human nature. And 2,000 years ago, this was still the case. The Jewish religious leaders would have loved the opening of Romans. Romans chapter 1, if the religious leaders of Judaism were to hear that in the first century, they would no doubt be like, that a boy Paul, maybe we were wrong about you. You have some good things to say. Uh, we agree with what you're saying here because you're talking about all the pagan Gentiles, the non-Jews, and how they have hardened hearts, how they publicly flaunt their sin. They would have no doubt keyed in, even on verse 25 of Romans chapter 1. We talked about this last week, which says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Maybe even the first century Jewish religious leaders would have specifically thought of a guy named Seneca when they heard this verse. Seneca, and there's a bust of him, is, was a, a Stoic philosopher in the first century who preached moralism and restraint, self-control. And yet it was known throughout the Greco-Roman world that Seneca didn't practice what he preached, that he openly, publicly flaunted sexual sin. And so when the religious leaders would read chapter one here of Romans, they'd be thinking of a guy like Seneca and thinking, oh, he's about to get his. These Greco-Roman, these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, these pagans. That's right, Paul. Give it to him. And then chapter two hits. And chapter two turns the spotlight from others and turns the spotlight onto the reader. Verse 1 says again, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for that in that you judge one another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. It's getting a little hot in here right now. For those in the first century, it was as, as the spotlight turns. The reason the excuse doesn't work that there's people who sin way worse than I do is because of our hypocrisy. The fact that we judge the very same things that we do. And this is what chapter 2 is talking about. The Jews judged in others the very things that they were doing. Verse 3 says again, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment 
of God. You see, pointing out someone else's sins, crafting the excuse, other people do worse things than me, it doesn't let us off the hook for our own sin. Verse 5 explains, and read it again. It says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, this excuse doesn't work that others do worse than I do because of our hypocrisy and because ultimately God sees our hearts. And just like the Gentiles had hardened hearts towards God, here Paul calls out those in the first century that were religious. And he says, you have stubborn hearts. You have unrepentant hearts. You see, the root cause of sin, whether it's public sin or private sin, is our hearts and our hearts hard towards God. Verse 11 says in, here in Romans chapter 2, for there is no partiality with God. He judges and stores up wrath and anger towards sin, whether it's public like chapter 1 or private like he's describing here in chapter 2. And then verse 16 here of chapter 2 says, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. And so we can't use the excuse, but others are worse than me. It doesn't let us off the hook. And let me even share one of the stories of my life of how this is illustrated. Uh, January 17th, 2013, almost a year ago today, at about 11.30 in the morning, I crafted this email on personal time, Dave, um, to the city of Santa Ana and to the traffic division of Santa Ana. I want to read you some excerpts from my email. My name is Matt Doan. My wife and I have three kids, and we live in Park Santiago neighborhood of Santa Ana. We've lived here for 10 years, and we love living in Santa Ana. Just start with some compliments, you know, opening email here. Um, recently, a neighbor of mine alerted me to the speeding problem that we have in our neighborhood as cars cut through our neighborhood to get to the 5 freeway and the main street. I've come to realize what a huge safety issue this is for our neighborhood. The speeding cars make it dangerous for me and my kids to even cross the crosswalk. Just appealing to the kids. Figure that's going to give me some power here. Um, I would like to meet with you, Mr. Traffic Division Coordinator of Santa Ana, and walk our neighborhood and talk through some possible solutions to this speeding problem. I wrote this email, like I said, around 11.28 in the morning on January 17th, 2013. At approximately 3.25 that very afternoon, this happened to me. (laughs) I was driving through my neighborhood and I was pulled over by one of our finest here in the city of Santa Ana as I went through a stop sign. What a hypocrite that I am. At 11.30, I write this email. There's a huge safety issue in our neighborhood. At three in the afternoon, I violate my own ethical code and worry. As the officer came to my car, I was like, this 
this is, you're going you're gonna to crack up about this, sir, but I actually just wrote an email to your boss this morning about the problems in our neighborhood, and like now you're pulling me over for getting through this top <laughs> He didn't think it was that funny. <laughs> you see, I could have argued, but sir, there, there were many cars that have come before me and will come after me today that will be going a lot faster and more in violation of the law than I am. But that doesn't matter because the point of why the officer pulled me over is I broke the law. So there could be people that are way worse than me, but the issue is, is I am still a violator of the law. So I've created the Doan Family Foundation if you want to help donate to my ticket. really appreciate that. No, just kidding. You see, the excuse that others sin worse than I do doesn't hold any weight because each of us has sinned before a holy God. We've broken the law of God. And so we're guilty. No matter what anyone else has done, the fact is we are guilty. And that leads to another one of, I think, our culture and our favorite excuses when it comes to sin. And that is this, is that... but. But I'm really devoted to religious things. I'm really devoted to the rituals of my religion. And, and so that should get me off the hook for my sin. And here in Romans 2, Paul, I think, anticipates that excuse as he goes on here in 17. Read with it. Read it with me. It says, But if you bear the name Jew, here in Romans 2, 17, and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, be instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who would say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his circumcision, uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though you having the letter of the law and the circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. See, Paul is arguing a really crucial point here in the opening of this letter. He's saying that if you rely on the law, if you rely on your religious rituals and practices to save you from your sin, to excuse you from your sin... You must live out the law perfectly and blamelessly. And this doesn't work. As you see here, as Paul creates maybe a hypothetical example, maybe he's thinking of someone in particular. He lists all these things. They say, don't do this. And then they break the very law that they were trying to keep. 
the Jews we see here in chapter 2 were not able to keep the law. And here's the thing. If you're not able to keep the law, it nullifies all of it. You see, the law was not meant to transform sinners into righteous people. But the law instead was to reveal God's righteousness and to show us our sin in comparison. This verse I just read, verse 25 here of chapter chapter 2 says this, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The Jewish people had almost like this superstitious view of circumcision. They looked at it as this is really the defining mark if, if you're saved, if, if you're in God's good favor. They felt that if a man was circumcised, him and his family belonged to God through the covenant made through Abraham, and that basically they had a hall pass when it came to sin. There was a Jewish philosopher here in this time who, who said something like this, They who are the seeds of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they are sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, they shall share in the eternal kingdom. In other words, it doesn't matter how you live. As long as you're circumcised, you're good. In fact, you can even flaunt your sin because you're in the club. You're in the right family. And so you get a pass. Is this what the Bible teaches? Is this what people are trying to rely on even today? You look at even our modern culture and the religious people of our culture. I've heard Catholic people say, well, I'm good, my sins are good because I go to Mass once a week. Or the Jewish person might say, I think I'm okay with God because I celebrate all the Jewish religious holidays. Or the Muslim might say, I am right with God because I've traveled to Mecca. I've made my pilgrimage. The Buddhist may say, yes, my sins will be overlooked because I meditate every day. The Mormon may say, well, I've been baptized in the Mormon temple, so therefore my sins will be overlooked. The Jehovah Witness will say, well, I've denied my birthday and celebrations. And because of my denial of such things, God will overlook my sins. Just the general American may say, well, you know, my grandfather was a pastor and my mom sang in the the choir. So I think God will overlook my sins. These are some of the excuses that are wrapped up in this idea of our religious rituals should save us, right? It's not how it works. The Bible doesn't teach this. No matter how we look outwardly, no matter how we produce piety through our merit, it does not take away our sins. God will not overlook our sins because of the things that we do. God is looking for an inward transformation of the heart that can only happen through his spirit and the triune God at work in your life. That's the only way that you can be washed free of sin. And so this excuse doesn't work. There's one more, though, that often is used by our culture, and even us. It's, well, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm really a good person at heart. And Romans 3 goes on. Look at verse 9. Jump down to Romans 3, 9. 
It says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. This passage here in Romans chapter 3 in the Hebrew would often be called a shiraz. A shiraz was a string of thoughts that basically made up one point. It would be like pearls of wisdom, they would call it. That's how it's translated, this word shiraz. And so here Paul is giving these pearls of wisdom. What he's doing is he's going back to the Old Testament. In fact, in your Bible, it's probably capitalized this section, each of these verses, which means that a little tip for you as you study the Bible is that it means that they're trying to indicate and show you that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And in your sermon notes today, in the backside of Digging Deeper, there's a bit more explanation about that you can look at later. But Paul gives these strings, these pearls of wisdom to make one point. And this point is this, is that there is no person who can meet God's perfect and holy standards. There's no one, none of us in this room, there's not anybody in the world right now, none of us meet God's perfect and holy standards. And I think this passage brings to my mind, and maybe it will bring to yours if you think about it, one of the haunting questions that I think speaks to each of us or that we wrestle with, even in this Christian life. And this question is this, how can God judge and condemn nice and good people? I mean, how can God tell an old grandma who pays her taxes, who clips her coupons, who eats dinner at 4.30, how can can God tell this woman that she's a sinner? She's nice. She's good. What kind of God could do this? Condemn her. Condemn me. Condemn you. We're good. Here's what we have to understand. Is that the measure of goodness isn't a nice grandma. The measure of goodness is God. And God's perfect. God is holy. And that's what we have to measure ourselves against. You see, beneath the surface of my goodness, your goodness, grandma's goodness is this, is that we're hypocrites and God sees our hearts even when no one else does. God sees our pride. He sees the arrogance of self-effort and self-righteousness. God sees all of our imperfections. God sees our sin. And so whether we're a good grandma or a good hipster, it doesn't matter. Each of us falls woefully short of God's holiness and his standards. 
If you ever begin to question that, just look here. Romans chapter 3, 9 through 18. As Paul lays this argument out. It's not just the Gentiles who need saving. It's the religious people too. And by the way, it's all of us. Here's the argument. And then it goes on in verse 19. Now we know that whoever, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Once we realize that none of our excuses work, none of them hold weight when we bring them before a holy God, what happens to us, or I think what the natural response is, is that we have nothing else to say. Verse 19 says that their mouths may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. We look through these excuses, but others sin worse than I do. That doesn't work. You have your own sin that's violated God's perfection. But my religious rich, no, you can't fulfill the law perfectly. But I'm really good. Standard of goodness is God. All these excuses are thrown out the window. And so we're left standing before God with nothing to say. It reminds me, and maybe you saw this movie, maybe you didn't. But in the year 2000, this movie with George Clooney came out called The Perfect Storm. And there are these fishermen off the East Coast, and they're fishing in this bad weather, and it forms the perfect storm, and they're fighting and trying to keep their small fishing vessel afloat. But finally, as the poster depicts, the massive, giant, perfect wave comes, and there's nothing left for them to do. And so George Clooney and all of his shipmates end up just basically standing there, waiting for this wave to crash, waiting for their fates to come down. And I feel like this is each of us when you really begin to understand that there's no excuse for our sins. We're just standing before God, waiting for the wrath of his perfect judgment, his righteousness to pour down on us. What are we to do? And because of our sin, we deserve death. My mom this week received a notice from her bank. And my mom's name is Susan. And the bank letter said, Dear Susan, we offer our condolences on the recent death of Susan Doan. <laughs> and so my mom called her bank, Bank of America, and um, said... Excuse me, um, this is Susan Doan. I appreciate your condolences, but I'm very much alive. <laughs> I think you've made a mistake in this letter. Church, one day when we stand before God, we won't be able to say, uh, Excuse me, I believe there's been a giant mistake here. I have a very valid excuse for my sin. I am good, all right? Let's just go ahead and just reverse this whole death separation from God thing. No, we'll have no valid excuse. There, there isn't any mistakes. God is fair and righteous, makes no mistakes. So what are we to do? As we feel the weight, God's wrath, God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's perfection on our lives. What are we to do? 
flip in your Bible if you're looking along here in Romans 3. And go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We'll talk about this down the road, but I want you to see it here today. Romans 8 answers a question that maybe you hadn't even thought of, but here's the question. It comes from Romans 7. Wretched man, who will set me free from this body of death? Paul's asking this question and he's like, I have nothing to stand on. I, I'm done. God, I'm a sinner. And then Romans 8 says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse keeps going, it gets better. It says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is the good news of the book of Romans. Is that we have no excuse before a holy God. The perfect storm is about to arrive. We will be crushed for our sins. And then Jesus shows up. And he offers us an exchange, not an excuse. For Jesus says... Take my righteousness. I will live the life in this world that none of you can live. I will be perfect and blameless before a holy God. And I will go to the cross not because of my sin or the things that I've done, but because of my perfection. And I will die on that cross and I will shed my blood, not to atone for my own sins, but to atone for those who believe. And then I will rise again on the third day and I will overcome sin. I will defeat the grave. Death will no longer have a sting because sin has been nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. I exchange my righteousness for your sin. That is good news. Amen. That is the gospel that we get to come together here on Sundays and celebrate and talk about, and we get to go on mission from this place, and with partnership with the Spirit, proclaim the good news, the gospel, to those that we work with, and live with, and eat with, and care for, and even the stranger, and the overlooked, and the innocent in the womb. We get to live out the good news of Jesus. You see, we're set free from excuses because we're set free from sin. There's a couple next steps I want us to do on here as we respond to this great truth from Romans. One is if you are in this room and you've only been offering excuses to God, hoping that he overlooks your sin, today is the day to commit your life to Jesus.
to say, I'm tired of running from you. I'm tired of trying to hide from you. I present myself a sinner before your holiness today. But I ask Jesus to come into my life by faith. Be my savior. Forgive me of my sins once and for all. Be the Lord, the leader of my life from this point forward. There's a little booklet in the seat rack in front of you. And it's titled, The Way to Connect with God. And there's a prayer in the back part of that booklet. And I challenge you, if you don't know where you stand with God, to pull that out during our response time. And do business with God. Commit your life to Him once and for all. Another step could be this. Maybe you have just more questions you're wrestling with. You're saying everything that you're saying here sounds good, but I need to think about this some more. And as we mentioned even earlier in our service, we have an opportunity for all of us to get a place to wrestle with good and honest questions. As Alpha comes up next month, I challenge you to sign up for that. Maybe a next step for you if you're a follower of Jesus is simply to demonstrate the gospel by caring for those that are overlooked and in the womb. Birth choices you've heard today would be a great place to plug in. Or maybe you just want to pray. Whether it's individually, you'll have opportunity to do that now, or if you want to come and find another Christian to pray with, this would be a great time to do that in just a moment. And here at the stations that are around the room, have an opportunity to take communion today and just celebrate what Christ has done. It is finished. The bread and the juice symbolize Jesus' work in the life of the believer. So I challenge you to take communion here today and to give at the stations. All that we have is this act of worship. And then the last thing is that the cards, I mean, in your bulletin uh, is a card. And that ultimate question is on there. What can set me free from sin and death? And then the response is Romans 8. Maybe during our worship response time here today, you just want to hold that card and read it and reread it and make that your prayerful celebration here. So let me pray and then let's respond. Father, thank you that Romans 2 and Romans 3 is true about all of us. That none of us seeks you. Not one of us is good enough. And yet the reason I thank you for that is because we know the good news meets our problem. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into our world. May the gospel not be something that is stale and just something we we got to get into this life, but now we're moved on to better things. But may the gospel, the good news, bring life to our Christian experience even here today. And so God, we give this response to you. In Christ's name, amen.